Just a quick update before we jump into our next episode. Thanks to Audible, you can get a free audiobook just for being a listener of our show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. I only recommend books that I have personally read or listened to. At the end of this episode, I'll drop my suggestion, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer opens the door to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And regardless of your decision to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 116 of History of the Marine Corps, part 3 of Guadalcanal and Tulagi. Our last episode followed Yoke's journey towards Tulagi. We now turn our attention to Task Group X-Ray as they head towards Beach Red on Guadalcanal. This episode covers the first land offensive by American forces in World War II. Similar to Tulagi, Marines faced unforeseen challenges upon their arrival at Guadalcanal. There was a significant gap between the intelligence received and the actual terrain on the island. Reliance on outdated sailing charts and inconsistent accounts from former residents led to a drastic change in Marine strategy. We close out the episode by reflecting on the broader implications of the Guadalcanal campaign. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. In the previous episode, we followed Yoke's journey as it separated from the task force and headed towards Tulagi. This episode returns to that point of separation, and it traces Task Group X-Ray's journey towards Beach Red on Guadalcanal, a 1,600-yard strip, slightly over five miles southeast of the landing field. The first round of naval bombardment started half an hour before Marines hit the beach focusing on the coastal region to pave the way for a smooth landing. Transport Group X-Ray, traveling at 12 knots and in two parallel lines, 750 yards between each vessel and about 1,000 yards between columns, reached the staging point at 645. The Marines patiently waited for their order, and five minutes later, the command, land the landing force, was given. In perfect unison, the two columns stopped and began deploying landing craft. Lacking detailed maps of Guadalcanal, higher command depended on outdated sailing charts and information from former residents. But these accounts were often inconsistent and inaccurate, resulting in an incomplete and sometimes misleading understanding of the landscape. This unreliable information forced the Marines to drastically change their strategy for one of their major objectives. Battle planners were informed by former residents about a hill, near the Lunga Plains, where the airfield was located. General Vandergriff's operation order identified this hill as a target, describing it as a grassy knoll. 
But this so-called grassy knoll was Mount Austin, a challenging 1,500-foot-tall hill scattered with rainforest and patches of kunai grass, a tall, sharp grass indigenous to the Pacific Islands. The lower parts of Mount Austin were surrounded by cliffs, ravines, and gorges, heavily overgrown with thick, virtually impenetrable vines. And contrary to the initial information received by military planners, Mount Austin was not close to Lunga Point. It was six miles west and eight miles south of their target. This hill was about 10 miles southwest of Beach Red, the landing spot for the Marines. To reach this terrain, Leathernecks must traverse rivers, dense jungles, sharp ravines, and plains covered with six-foot-tall kunai grass. When the commander of the 1st Marines, Colonel Cates, witnessed the intimidating terrain facing his men, he instantly recognized the absurdity and near impossibility of their objective. This sentiment was shared by the regiment's executive officer and the operations officer. That night, Cates met with General Vandergrift, and after being briefed about the terrain, arrived at the same conclusion. The Marines would soon find out that Japanese had defenses on Mount Austin that presented a formidable challenge. Japanese forces had established strong defensive positions on Mount Austin, and the Marines, but mostly the U.S. Army, would have to remove them. Estimating the size of the enemy force on Guadalcanal relied heavily on reports from coast watchers and local informants. Similar to accounts on the terrain, intelligence on enemy size was imprecise. According to the information gathered, close to 5,000 enemy troops were believed to be present in the Lunga area, including a reinforced infantry regiment and an anti-aircraft battalion. The U.S. planned its attack based on this little information. The selected landing zone was set far enough to ensure a safe landing and organization of troops, allowing them to move strategically before initiating the assault. This location also provided natural defenses. The northern end was flanked by the Tenaru River, which acted as a natural defense against any attacks from the west or northwest. Operation Order 7-42 detailed the landing strategy on Guadalcanal, with the 5th Marines, minus the 2nd Battalion who were fighting on Tulagi, to land on Beach Red. They were to form two battalions, side by side, with the 1st Battalion covering the right flank and the 3rd Battalion positioned to counter any threats from the southeast on the left flank. The 1st Marines landed 50 minutes later, and they formed into a column. Their objective was to take the inaccurately labeled Grassy Knoll. The 1st Battalion 5th Marines' mission was to secure Teneru, also known as Alligator Creek. The support group and other divisional units not engaged in Tulagi were directed to land at Beach Red, as per the order. To help with the assault, six float planes from cruisers of Task Force 62 were provided. Three were from USS Astoria and were tasked with marking Beach Red with smoke for visibility. While the other three, from the USS Quincy, helped the 11th Marines Artillery Unit. Vandergriff set the H-hour at 0910, 
the Marines headed to shore and executed the landing without any opposition. By 938, the 5th Marines headquarters was established inland, and by 11, the 1st Marines had begun to pass through the 5th Marines' right flank. Three hours later, they were advancing on their mission. Troop movement from the beachhead initiated with the 1st Battalion 5th Marines moving west to secure Alligator Creek for overnight positions, while the 3rd Battalion covered the southeast beachhead flank. The 1st Marines quickly recognized that reaching their assigned objective of Mount Austin was impractical. The hill, which had been clearly visible from the ships, couldn't be seen from the beach. As they moved inland, the regiment encountered unexpectedly challenging terrain. They also discovered that the banks of the Tenaru River were steep and densely vegetated, making them hard to navigate. It was too deep and too wide, and the Marines found that crossing the river was impossible, which further complicated their progress. Now, later during the battle, this problem would be solved with the amphibian tractor's help, proving its worth again, as it did in Tulagi. Engineers from the Engineer Battalion prepared an improvised bridge using materials gathered from the ship. This makeshift bridge was transported ashore using two amphibian tractors. Once on land, the tractors were driven into a minor stream entering the river from the southeast and were used as pontoons. Over the tractors, the makeshift bridge was laid, creating a path over the waterway. Support groups started to make their way to shore. And by 1515, the command post was established on shore. Vandergrift arrived 45 minutes later. Now, one of the most captivating Marine Corps stories from this era involves Fred Condorman, whose son, Robert, was tragically killed in the surprise Japanese attack on Wake Island on December 7th. We cover Robert's story and his final moments in Episode 102, Attack on the Pacific, Part 1. On that fateful day, 36 Japanese bombers raided Wake Island around noon. Robert, a pilot, sprinted towards his plane, hoping to take off and engage the enemy. But he was strafed by a fighter and went down near his aircraft. As he was laying on the ground, a bomb hit his aircraft, pinning him under the wreckage. Corporal Robert Page rushed towards him, but despite his grave condition, he selflessly directed Page to help another injured Marine. Sadly, he died from his injuries before morning. When Fred received the news of his only son, he was devastated and vowed revenge. Quote, They hit him without warning, shot him on the ground, without giving him a chance to strike back. I'll take his place and fight them back till I make them pay for his life. Unquote. He tried enlisting in every military branch but faced rejection due to his age. When he approached the Marine Corps, he offered to take his son's place, but the Corps initially refused. But the constant rejections didn't cause him to lose hope. Three times a week, Fred took flying lessons at a civil airport, traveling 180 miles round trip. Quote, If I can't get in any of the armed branches of service, I'll buy a plane and fly it across the Pacific myself to even the score. Unquote. 
Fred knocked on doors and sent letters to every Marine officer he could find in Washington. The Corps eventually gave in. They offered him a position in the mail service, serving as a captain. He accepted on two conditions. Quote, I want to be sent to the Pacific War Zone, and do I get a rifle? Unquote. The Corps promised him a new rifle, and Condorman's response was, quote, I've been hunting bears, deer, ducks, and birds all my life. Now I want to shoot a few skunks. Unquote. When the transport group reached the staging area, Fred's CO reminded him, You must remain on the boat to look after the mail. You have no business ashore. But despite these orders, Fred jumped on a transport vessel and joined his brothers as they headed towards Guadalcanal. En route, the colonel glanced from his landing craft only to see Fred in a nearby vessel. When they landed, the colonel again encountered Fred, diligently supplying ammunition to the front lines. Although he was amazed, his colonel scolded him and said, quote, I told you to stay on the boat until we get ready to set up a post office here. Unquote. Fred gave him a simple and honest reply. You know why I'm here, Colonel. I'm not neglecting my postal duty, sir. There's nothing I could do along that line now. But there's plenty I can do here to help establish our beachhead, sir, and I'm doing it. The Colonel smiled and walked away. Now this is where I lack some information. Based on multiple newspaper clippings, I know Fred CO was a colonel in the 1st Marine Division. But even the CO's rank can be misleading, since lieutenant colonel was sometimes swapped for colonel. Plus, there were a few lieutenant colonels who stormed Guadalcanal that were promoted to colonel in the upcoming months. To be perfectly honest, I'm not sure where the post office would sit. Current Marine Corps orders places the responsibility on the commanding officer so I made a few assumptions to narrow down who Condorman CO is. I assume this responsibility wouldn't be given to a colonel who had a direct role in securing the island, so I removed infantry, artillery, and intelligence officers from the list. If I had to put money on it, I would guess Fred CO was Colonel Robert Kilmartin Jr. He was in charge of administration on Guadalcanal, and it seems like the most likely spot a post office would sit but I can see it sitting under operations, which was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Gerald Thomas, and possibly logistics, under Lieutenant Colonel Randolph Pate. But as I mentioned, this is only a guess, so if you have any information or guesses of your own, please send them my way. Fred later opened a post office on Guadalcanal, but he continued to join Marines on patrols and reconnaissance. One Marine who served with Condorman reported, quote, he more than evened the score, unquote. In 1944, Fred was honored as the Fighting Father of the Year by the National Father's Day Committee. His story was even immortalized in a slightly embellished five-page comic by Real Life Comics in 1945, titled Major Fred D. Condorman. By nightfall, Everyone was in position. You couldn't have asked for a better first day. The landing was a success. The two regiments and all division troops were in place and moving forward with their mission, and the Marines faced no opposition. Although the troop progress was a success, 
the movement of supplies faced some challenges. They lacked sufficient personnel to help with unloading the cargo. There was a lot of finger pointing as a result of this mistake. Captain Reef Schneider, commander of the task group, reported, quote, A serious situation developed early during landing operations when the labor section of the shore party was unable to cope with the rapidity and quantity of supplies and equipment delivered at the beach. The situation is ascribed to a total lack of conception of the number of labor troops required to unload boats and move material off the beach, failure to extend the beach limits earlier in operation, and, to some extent, lack of control of troops on and in the immediate vicinity of the beach. It was definitely understood and agreed that the unloading of the boats and the removal of material from the beach would be done by the labor section of the Pioneer Battalion. Unquote. The Pioneer Battalion that was mentioned only had a total of 310 men on the ground, which is not nearly enough to unload ships. Now, many of those who did make it to shore were assigned to defensive positions. The rest were deployed as reinforcements to various regiments, so the Pioneer Battalion wasn't available. The reality was that General Vandergrift, guided by the intelligence at his disposal, was preparing for an intense battle near the airfield. Units were redirected to assembly areas in preparation for combat, instead of being unavailable for unloading. And although the shore party had the authority to request additional labor from unit commanders, focusing on imminent combat priorities meant that these requests were not always fulfilled. But regardless of who was at fault, the problem of unloading supplies still existed. Admiral Turner ordered Reef Snyder to speed up the unloading process. By mid-afternoon, Vandergrift received word that no more men remained on the beach to help unload supplies, and that the commander desperately needed 500 Marines to help. Fifteen sailors from each cargo ship were already being brought in and used to help unload the shipment. Despite these efforts, the temporary solution to the problem was unsustainable. At one point, 100 boats were beached with supplies, while another 50 waited offshore. The shore party was overwhelmed, leading to a report to General Vandergrift that the unloading was utterly disorganized and the ships had to stop unloading until the beach could be cleared. Three hours after this report, Turner confirmed to Vandergrift that unloading was stopped to address the issue, which seems a little counterintuitive. Throughout this debacle, Enemy activity was relatively light and was limited to ineffective airstrikes from Rabaul. At 1100, a coast watcher alerted the task force that 18 bombers were en route to Guadalcanal. They arrived at 1320, targeting the ships right off Beach Red, with the destroyer Mugford taking a hit from a 250-pound bomb, leading to 20 casualties. But no other ships were damaged. Two planes were shot down by ship anti-aircraft fire. A second air raid occurred around 1500, with 10 dive bombers striking the same area. This attack caused no damage, and two attacking planes were also brought down by anti-aircraft fire. 
Japan didn't target the beach in either attack. The Marines had a pretty quiet night, except for incidents caused by the nervousness of troops who were inexperienced in combat and unsure about enemy locations. While there wasn't Japanese activity noted, there was a good deal of friendly fire within the zones occupied by the 1st and 5th Marines, leading to some casualties within these units. On August 7th, Vandergrift adjusted the operation plan due to logistical and strategic considerations. The original goal for the 1st Marines was too ambitious, and the division wasn't at full strength, since they still had a regiment who was fighting on Gavatu and Tanambogo, and a battalion of the 5th Marines who were still on Tulagi. The daunting terrain of Mount Austin and the logistical challenges was too much. The revised plan for August 8th focused on securing the airfield and establishing a defensive line along the Lunga River, with continued defense of the eastern and southeastern perimeters of Beach Red. With tank support, the 1st Battalion 5th Marines cautiously advanced towards the Lunga, maintaining the right flank along the beach. Meanwhile, the 1st Marines, after spending the night by the Tenaru River, pushed westward. Their progress was slow, due to the terrain and poor unit contact. The major cause of this was insufficient patrolling to the front and flanks. By nightfall, the 1st Battalion 1st Marines had taken the airfield and reached the Lunga, but the 2nd and 3rd Battalions had only covered about 500 yards per hour. They set up camp south of the airfield and bunkered down for the night. The progression of the 5th Marines was relatively uneventful, moving through areas previously occupied by Japanese forces, they met resistance from mostly isolated Japanese soldiers. The Marines took several prisoners during this advance. Information gathered from these prisoners and documents captured from the enemy suggested that there wasn't a planned resistance, which aligned with what frontline units were seeing and reporting. Based on this intelligence, the regiment received orders to reduce its formation's width, cross the Lunga near the airfield, and proceed west. Weapons Company led the way, and by 1500 the Marines had arrived at the main Japanese camp. They discovered that the Japanese forces were smaller and more demoralized than expected. Marines found many well-preserved supplies, ammunition, and valuable materials like electrical and radio equipment. The Japanese made minimal effort to destroy their gear, with most of the damage to their installations being the result of previous bombardments. They also made considerable progress at Lunga Point. In a little over a month, they were able to build a wide range of facilities, including camps, wharves, bridges, machine shops, two large radio stations, ice plants, two power plants, a sophisticated air compressor plant for torpedoes, an almost complete air dome with hangars and blast pens, and a 3,600-foot runway. Another coast watcher stationed at Bougainville reported that many planes had been seen over his post. An hour later, they reached the ships at Guadalcanal. 
about 40 Japanese torpedo planes attacked, resulting in the loss of the destroyer Jarvis and the transport Elliot. The Jarvis was hit by a torpedo and was last seen heading southeast. Japan sent 31 planes to search for the ship. Once discovered, they raked it with strafing fire and hit it with more torpedoes. According to Japanese records, the ship split and sank, killing all 233 on board. The Elliot had to be beached and destroyed after a plane crashed into it. Twelve of the attacking aircraft were shot down by ship anti-aircraft fire and carrier-based fighters. Shore-based anti-aircraft weapons took out another two. Carrier-based fighters took down a few others west of the transport area. Seven American planes were lost during this defense. The burning of the transport Elliot led to two significant problems beyond the loss of the ship itself. 2-1 lost most of their supplies aboard the Elliot. And more critically, the fire's glow allowed enemy observers near Tassaferonga to spot and report the presence of American cruisers and destroyers. This was a problem for the Navy. There was very little room for risk to naval vessels after losses at Pearl Harbor, Midway, and the Coral Sea. As Vandergrift learned from the secret rendezvous, transport vessels were a priority. On August 8th, General Vandergrift received alarming news during an evening meeting aboard the USS Macaulay. Turner informed him that all transports and cargo vessels would be withdrawn by the following morning. This decision was based on a message from Admiral Fletcher that cited fuel shortages and the loss of a significant number of his planes as the reason for his withdrawal. This was a huge issue for Vandergriff and his staff, since this drastically reduced the time to unload supplies. The rapid withdrawal of the ships and the unloading issues Marines faced earlier resulted in a chaotic situation on the beach and meant that the division was left in a dire situation with a significantly reduced supply level. While ships were packing up on Guadalcanal, Allied forces suffered a significant defeat against the Japanese cruiser force during the Battle of Savo Island nearby. Three U.S. heavy cruisers and almost 1,100 American lives were lost during this battle. The defeat at Savo was devastating for Allied forces. But despite the decisive victory by Japan, the enemy decided not to take advantage of the territory gained. Post-war interviews revealed that the Japanese refrained from further attacks due to an 8-inch shell penetrating the Shokai's operation room, which destroyed vital equipment and charts, forcing Admiral Mikawa to withdraw to avoid the risks of daytime aerial attacks. When Task Force 62 withdrew from the Guadalcanal and Tulagi area, they left behind 16,075 personnel. These included various detachments of marine divisions, companies, and specialized units, such as the 1st Raider Battalion, 1st Parachute Battalion, and elements of the 1st Tank Battalion, among others. As discussed during the first part of the series, 
Admiral Turner was assigned overall command of forces on the island, which didn't sit well with the Marines. They believed that the landing force commander on the ground should be in charge. Turner took elements of the 2nd Marines and turned them into the 2nd Provisional Raider Battalion. It consisted of a small headquarters and six rifle companies. This unit didn't last long, and it was disbanded about a month later. But this decision did not sit well with Gormley, Nimitz, or the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Holcomb. Vandergrift, who was under the immediate command of Turner, wasn't even consulted for his opinion. In a letter to the commander of the South Pacific, Turner justified the creation of the 2nd Provisional Raider Battalion, quote, In many circumstances in the future amphibious warfare in the South Pacific, it is believed that a Marine regiment, or part of a Marine regiment, or two Marine regiments, will be the size of a force appropriate for offensive and defensive amphibious operations. The employment of a division seems less likely. The problem of mopping up outlying detachments will exist throughout the campaign. For this reason, the commander, Amphibious Force South Pacific, has reached the conclusion that the Marine Regiment will not be an entirely suitable combat unit for operations in the South Pacific, unless it has, as an integral part of its organization, either a Raider or Parachute Battalion. The previous concept that Raider and parachute battalions are always division or corps troops is no longer agreed to. In view of the foregoing, the commander, Amphibious Force South Pacific, will, unless directed to the contrary, proceed with the organization of provisional raider battalions in the 2nd, 7th, and 8th Marines, and give these already trained troops additional specialized training as seems appropriate. Furthermore, he recommends that Marine Corps Headquarters issue directions for the permanent organization of Raider Battalions as integral units of all Marine regiments now attached to, or ultimately destined for, the Amphibious Force South Pacific. It is not recommended that the total personnel strength of regiments be increased. Unquote. Fletcher took it upon himself to make decisions about the size and mission of a Marine regiment and the requirement of specialized units within that regiment. Vice Admiral Gormley forwarded the letter to the Commandant of the Marine Corps on September 6th, routing it through Admiral Nimitz of the U.S. Pacific Fleet. He included his thoughts on Turner's suggestions. Quote, the organization of Raider Battalions from the organic troop of the 7th and 8th Marines should be withheld, pending a declaration of policy by the Commandant of the Marine Corps. Unquote. Admiral Nimitz added a second endorsement directed to General Holcomb on September 24th. And a copy of this was also sent to Admiral Turner. Quote, the Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Pacific Fleet, is of the opinion that Raider Battalions are specialized troops and should be reserved for appropriate tasks, and that extemporized organization of Marine forces should be made only in case of dire necessity. Unquote. On October 3rd, General Holcomb addressed Admiral Nimitz in the form of a letter. In the most diplomatic way possible, he told Turner to fuck off. Quote, the Commandant noted with much concern the order for the commander, 
Amphibious Force, South Pacific Force, to organize a raider battalion on a temporary basis from the units of the 2nd Marines, less its battalions. He made no comment at the time for reason that at this distance, no one could form an opinion as to the necessity of carrying out this most unusual procedure. The objections thereto are clearly set forth by the Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Pacific Fleet, and appear to need no further comment. It's noted with regret that Admiral Turner's letter on August 29th does not contain the views of the commanding general, Marine Division, in a matter in which he is particularly qualified and concerned, unquote. Of course, the commanding general mentioned was Vandergrift, but he had more significant issues on his plate besides egos and politics. By sundown on August 9th, all ships had departed, leaving the Marines with insufficient supplies, uncertainty regarding resupply, and limited intelligence on enemy forces on the island. Task Force 61, whose aircraft had been helpful during the initial days, also left, along with the cruiser force patrolling the area. Given his force's relatively small size, General Vandergrift focused primarily on defending the Lunga Point region, which included the vital airfield. To summarize this episode, we revisited the pivotal moments leading up to and during the initial landings on Guadalcanal. Task Group X-Ray, heading towards Beach Red, faced the challenge of navigating Guadalcanal with limited and often false intelligence. They were misled about key terrain features like the grassy knoll, forcing them to adjust their objectives within the dense and treacherous terrain. The Marines' landing was well executed despite the challenges of the unfamiliar landscape and unreliable information. They quickly realized that objectives like securing Mount Austin were impractical due to the terrain and the enemy's positioning. Intelligence gathered from various sources, including prisoners and documents, suggested that the Japanese forces were smaller and less organized than expected. This was reflected in the Marines' encounters as they advanced with minimal resistance discovering abundant supplies left by the Japanese. But logistical challenges emerged, particularly with unloading supplies from the beach. The shore party, responsible for this task, faced a labor shortage and disorganization, compounded by the reassignment of troops for combat rather than logistical support. Admiral Turner's decision to accelerate the unloading process highlighted the situation's urgency. Despite efforts to bring additional personnel to assist, the process was overwhelmed, leading to a halt in the unloading operations. We also touched on enemy air raids, which were relatively ineffective, and the internal challenges and decisions within the Marine Corps, including the controversial formation and disbanding of the 2nd Provisional Raider Battalion. As we finish up the episode, we reflect on the complexities and the challenges of the Guadalcanal campaign. The Marines were left with limited supplies and support, highlighting their difficulties in maintaining a stronghold on the island. Thanks for listening. This episode's audiobook is Guadalcanal Diary by Richard Trugaskis. The Guadalcanal Diary is a first-hand account of the World War II battle on Guadalcanal. This work, 
originally published in 1943, provides an intimate and detailed chronicle of the early stages of the Guadalcanal campaign from the perspective of an embedded war correspondent. Tregascus, who spent six weeks with the U.S. Marines on Guadalcanal, starting in August 1942, offers a vivid portrayal of the daily life, struggles, and bravery of the Marines during one of the pivotal campaigns in the Pacific Theater. His narrative captures the traumatic conditions faced by U.S. troops, including the intense jungle warfare, the challenges of the hostile environment, and the constant threat of Japanese attacks. The diary provides insights into the daily routine of the Marines, their combat experiences, and the physical and psychological toll of the war. Tregascus narrates various skirmishes, artillery barrages, and the constant tension of anticipating enemy attacks. As we discussed during today's episode, the Marines not only battled the Japanese, but also fought against the harsh conditions of the island. The diary describes the dense jungle, disease, and difficult climate conditions that added to the hardships of warfare. I'm all about the human element of war and truly captivated by the individual stories of those who are actually fighting on the front lines. Tregascus emphasizes these stories, capturing their personalities, conversations, and acts of bravery. This humanizes the war experience, showing the courage and resilience of the Marines. The Guadalcanal Diary is regarded as an important historical document for its first-hand candid depiction of the war. It not only serves as a chronicle of military operations, but also as a tribute to the bravery and endurance of the Marines during one of the most challenging campaigns of World War II. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.